Welcome back to the Authentic On Air with Bruce Alexander. Today's show is brought to you by my new digital course, Nine Ways for the ADHD Dad to Radically Improve Communication. Do you ever struggle to communicate with your spouse or your family in a way that feels meaningful? Have you found yourself consistently taken advantage of at work and in your personal life because no one seems to care how it affects you? If that sounds familiar, then you have a communication problem. ADHD or not, dad or not, if you are not able to identify, define, and communicate what is important to you with authority and intention, you will continue to struggle. I know that from experience. If you can't communicate what matters to you, it is almost impossible to do anything that matters. The nine steps for the ADHD dad to radically improve communication is a self-paced digital course that will guide you to reclaiming the power of your voice to speak the life you deserve into existence. It's available at www.authenticidentitymanagement.com forward slash nine steps hyphen special offer. Not only can you get this course at a special limited time price that you need to see to believe, but I am also throwing in some really valuable bonus materials completely free of charge. Again, for a limited time, not only will you get the course at a special low price, but you will get all the following completely free. Access to the ADHD Dad's private community where I post live content daily, the impactful audio lesson, the 10 hacks for the ADHD Dad to thrive in the workplace, access to the passion, purpose, and self-acceptance video collection featuring Jim Rohn, Jordan Peterson, and Garrett J. White, a digital download of the powerful unmasking ADHD blueprint and for the cost of shipping and handling only an exclusive ADHD dad t-shirt so you can represent your allegiance to that ADHD dad life. That is all available at www.authenticidentitymanagement.com forward slash nine steps hyphen special offer. Again, that is www.authenticidentitymanagement.com forward slash nine steps hyphen special offer. You can also just click the link in the show notes. Now back to the regularly scheduled episode. I was ready to hang up my mic and headphones for just about a month while we embarked on our epic cross-country adventure. But then I got inboxed by Billy Sue Smith on the back of a massively popular 10th episode with Peter Evans. She knew how to work me. She name-dropped Derek Sire of a pair of extremely insightful episodes and Peter Evans, whose episode had just set a new standard for raw vulnerability on my show, while at the same time complimenting me. More about that after today's reflection. Today, I want to challenge you to think about change, specifically immense change. How many times have you committed to a life overhaul of some sort, seeking something better for yourself? A diet, a fitness plan, a breakup, career transition, or a move to the coast? What results have you gotten from changing everything that surrounds, enters, or affects yourself? Are you satisfied? I changed or am changing all of those things and more. In my opinion, there's nothing at all wrong with making a change. Change can be catalyst for something great. It has not been for me. The change was never the problem, but it was never the solution either. With every change I made, I was waiting for a change in me. I lost 90 pounds, hated myself, put 70 of it back on, mostly muscle, hated myself. I looked in the mirror often and told myself how disgusting I was, sometimes even out loud. I didn't need to change. I needed to love. When I got kicked out of college in 2005, I was left with a pretty serious drug habit. I will spare you the gory details for now. But I will tell you, I was not long for this world on the path that I was on. My wife now, and girlfriend at the time, was the catalyst for the birth of a mindset I wouldn't fully formulate and accept for over 15 years. She told me she would not stay and watch me while I killed myself. I did not want to lose her, but I really didn't want to die. I committed to my first true act of self-love. I kicked narcotics, and in almost 20 years, I never looked back. Not because I changed, but because the person I was deserved to be alive and deserved to be loved. I embraced that I was a mess and I had been messing up for a while, 
I did not have to let that define who I was anymore. I loved myself enough to surround myself with better people and to put myself in better situations. It took many, many, many more years for me to realize that I could love myself enough to do more than just survive. But it was that experience that would later develop into the authentic philosophy. I would love to hear what experiences you've had with major change. I want to know if you have found what you were looking for that way. So go to the episode reflection, post on Instagram, Facebook, Reds, or LinkedIn at Authentic Identity Management, and let me know if you have changed for the better. If you were like I was and just find yourself frustrated after massive life overhauls, type Embrace into the comments, and I'll reach out to you and set up a 30-minute free consultation to see if I can help you in embracing yourself as you are and honoring yourself enough to foster the growth you deserve. If you love the space we are creating on this podcast or want to help advance my mission of making the world a safer place for authenticity, here are a few ways you can support this show. Leave a review and tell me what you think is great, needs work, or would like to see more of in the show. Follow the show on your favorite podcast platform or all the platforms you use. Use that share function. Send an episode of this show to someone you care about or post on your social media and your feeds and on your stories. Billy Sue Smith came highly recommended to me by two of my most respected mentors and alumni of this show, Derek Sire and Peter Evans. To put it short, I already have no doubt that she is quote unquote good people, as Peter put it. Not that I am counting, but she has already scored a lot of points with me because as I did my research for this episode, I found that she loves some of my favorite things. An avid golfer, weight trainer, and traveler, she is actively involved in all the things that bring me great joy that I, for one reason or another, haven't been able to do for a while. She is also a parent, a return college graduate, and an animal lover. All roles I will love and cherish forever. As important as all these things can be to supporting one's definition of themselves, Billy is really excited to get out here and share a different story. So much so that she has a TED Talk scheduled next year to talk about it. That topic is sobriety, not alcoholism, not the common story of doing irreparable damage and getting clean to avoid further damage, Billy Sue has a different approach, which I'm frankly excited to hear her take on considering my philosophy regarding change. I feel like I'm going to learn something today, and that is very exciting for me. I'm so happy to welcome Billy Sue Smith into the Authentic On Air studio. Welcome, Billy Sue. Thanks, Bruce. I'm excited to be here with you. Excellent. Um, can you tell the audience in your own words who you are, how you spend the majority of your time, and why you think I invited you on the show today? Wow. I am a mother, first and foremost. I have two daughters that are now 18 and 21. I've only got one left at home and she will soon be leaving. She just got a job as an international flight attendant. She's the family baby and I don't know how I'm going to handle this. That's happening next month. But that's probably the biggest role I play in life is mom. I was a single parent to them from the time they were four and one. And I had a great village that helped me raise them. And we are super, super close, very enmeshed, codependent family. (laughs) I'm a cat mom. Two years ago, my youngest daughter talked me into adopting one cat because the oldest took our family dog with her when she moved out. And we adopted Doja Cat. Mm -hmm. And a month later, we ended up with another cat, Missy Elliott. And I always despised cats. And they are my life now. Everyone who knows me knows about my cats, has seen photos of my cats. I just got a tattoo of a cat. Wow. So I love cats. I'm a golfer. I started golfing at 43. I'm 45 now. And we were just having this discussion about the challenges of golf. And it's brought a lot of joy and excitement and challenge into my life, which is what I think a lot of people need when we hit our mid-40s and start to figure out what our next chapter looks like. I spend a lot of my time writing, working, working out. I love to cook. 
and playing amateur therapist to a lot of my friends. That's kind of my semi-retirement plan is to be an actual therapist. So I think that sums me up. Excellent. And can you say why you think I invited you on the show? To hear about my journey to becoming my authentic self. Um, And I wanted to come on because Peter Evans spoke highly of you. And I know if Peter speaks highly of you, then you're probably a good person. Or as Peter would Peter would say, good people. I can hear him saying that yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, Peter's awesome. And, you know, I really appreciate that he has spoken highly of me because I, I really do. I think the world of him. So can you tell me how you define authenticity? Authenticity is being your real self. It is showing the parts of you that scare you, that you think might scare other people. It's being yourself even when people might not like it. It's being true to yourself even when it upsets other people. That's my definition of authentic. I like that. Good. Um, so let's go, let's go here first. How would others describe you both correctly and incorrectly? Ooh, that's a good one. Correctly, I would say I'm fun. People always know that if I'm around, we're going to have fun. They would say that I'm outgoing and talkative and that I genuinely care about people and I'm curious about people. I'm always the one who knows more about someone than everyone else knows about them because I just ask all the questions. Incorrectly, let's see, what if I had people assume that was incorrect? That I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth could not be farther from the truth. I've had teenagers tell me that, that I just have this aura that I grew up in some wealthy, intact family. Not true. Uh, What would they say incorrectly? That I love attention, maybe, which I I really don't. That's something people get wrong about me, even though I get up and speak in front of hundreds of people. and I'm always at these events and doing the things. I'm very much an ambivert, so I like to be alone a lot. And I also do not like to be the center of attention. So I don't want a birthday party. I don't want open presents in front of people. I think people probably assume that about me incorrectly. Do you ever struggle with wearing those uh, those incorrect opinions of yourself too heavily? Not as much these days. I used to, for sure. I used to worry a lot what people thought about me. I used to underperform and overperform depending on the situation. Sometimes I would feel that people were intimidated by me because I came across very confident and strong, so I would underperform. And then sometimes to get people to like me, I would overperform and violate my own boundaries just to get people's approval. But I'm getting I'm getting better at that, Bruce. I don't I don't do that so much these days. Um tell me more about underperforming. Like this is this is something that I'm not familiar with, only because, sorry, being a black man in America, it's, it's pretty important to me to always, like, overcome people's expectations, always do better, always do more, because I feel like people are constantly thinking I'm going to do less. And so what is it like to make the conscious decision to do less? I think as a woman, there are lots of challenges. So I've worked in many male-dominated industries where if you are too smart, too capable, you have a lot of connections, 
you're perceived as having too much power, it can get you fired. It can get you fired. It can get you ousted. So I have definitely had to downplay all of those things many, many times in order to keep myself in a better situation. And then I think with other women, oftentimes if women feel threatened by you or that you're doing something better or physically they're intimidated by something about you, so you tend to downplay. You downplay, you don't get dressed up as much, you underdress. There are just all kinds of ways that I think women underperform in order to fit in. We shrink a little bit to fit into different environments and to make ourselves not as noticeable because being noticeable puts a target in your back, on your back in some situations. Yeah, I, li- I like that you use that term shrink a little bit because that, that makes me identify with it more. Mm-hmm. I definitely have had times where I felt like I've needed to shrink who I am to, to provide what somebody else wants. Yes. Um, definitely not something I, I'd like to do. I didn't like to do it then, mm-hmm. but I try to not do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, yeah, so I can, I can understand that a little better. Yeah. Um, you've shared some pretty vulnerable stuff on your social media. Um, so I know that you've struggled with authenticity. Can you tell me about when that struggle was at its, at its most, I don't know, at its most intense? It has been intense at so many, I would say my whole life. I, I would say only the last two years and really in the last year have I, have I really felt like I've grown into myself and had the true confidence to be authentic up to that point, 43 years. It was a struggle. I can think of times just as recent as, you know, two, three years ago that I was still stretching the truth, um, underperforming, not telling the whole story, exaggerating, people pleasing, all the things that we do to try to gain people's approval, none of which is authentic at all. And inside, it creates a war because you're not living your true authentic self and you know that but you're fooling other people but you can't fool yourself you can't run away from yourself so there were lots of depressive episodes lots of anxiety and i just don't think i ever made the correlation until i got sober a couple years ago got into therapy and really started digging deep and luckily i landed on a therapist who was a better communicator and better manipulator than I was and he was just not having any of my stuff <laughs> which I did not like at first but he well, just kind of saw let's right let's stay me. there for a minute let's talk about manipulating therapy mm-hmm. like so some people want to score points when they go into therapy mm-hmm. is that the mindset you went in with I think it was 50 it was a natural thing for me to try to win people over So I did go in, but I was also at a very low point in life that I knew I needed help. I needed someone to help me figure my life out and get myself back on track. And so I was relieved in a way. I have a psychology degree and I'm for myself pretty intelligent, very intuitive. I know how to work people on strength finders. My number one strength is woo. And so I was somewhat relieved when I immediately respected him because I knew that he, I could not outsmart him. And so, yeah, I did go in there sort of planning to be able to overpower him mentally. And then I was also relieved when I could, because it did lead to a lot 
Uh, changed for me. So I've noticed the theme. For me, it was the lack of choice that led me to like really embrace my authentic self. Like I had, to. I was gonna, you know, I was gonna lose. I, I didn't start really starting to be real. Um, other people have shared that there there was something else that kind of forced them into. So for you, he saw through you, and once you, I mean, you're sitting in a session. That, you you paid your money already. Mm-hmm. At that point, he saw through you. Like, what did you feel? Relieved, to be honest. There haven't been many people in my life that I didn't feel that I could outsmart. And I felt relieved that, wow, I actually, on the first try, chose a therapist who can outsmart me and who's going to call me out and not let me run my normal game. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was honestly a relief. So in that relief, did you immediately, once you realized that, did you just start dumping it all out and like laying it all on the table or was it still a process? Yes. He told me in the first session and I'll never forget. And he's a very strong, almost intimidating. He has a very strong presence about him. He's very confident. He told me in the first session that if you are not completely 100% honest and transparent with me, you're wasting my time and you're wasting yours. And if I get the feeling that you're not, then I'll just terminate the relationship because my goal is not to keep you forever. My goal is to help you help yourself and then get you on your way. And I, I think I just, I just had a lot of respect for that. And so I did, I completely laid it all out and told him the truth about everything. And that was probably the first time in my life that I have been a hundred percent truthful, especially about the way I really felt about myself. I think I had lied a lot other people about how I felt about myself and just put on this front because I didn't want to appear weak. And so it was the first time that I had admitted all the ways that I felt about myself. So in that time, like, so he sees through you, you feel relieved. You start to unburden yourself of all, like, of all the stuff, mm-hmm. the lies, the, you know, the hiding, all the stuff all sounds familiar to me. What did you feel as you were unloading all this stuff? Like, Oh, I cried all, I am not a crier. I'm not. I am a sentimental person. I am a mush ball, but I do not typically cry. I cried so much in therapy. I just thought Noah's Ark was going to show up. It was a lot of crying. So what were the tears? Were they, was it sadness? Was it frustration? Was it like? It was a lot of regret as I talk a lot of these things out, a lot of regret. Um, a lot of ways that I had been traumatized by other people and just had never been able to openly admit. Um, a lot of him validating that, just reminding me that you've carried around the opinions of these people who have nothing going for them. And there's no fact to any of these stories that you have been fed and the stories you're telling yourself. You have not been separating facts from fiction. I think just feeling seen. Mm-hmm. Just feeling seen in that way. And then all of the regret, remorse that I had over ways that I had been really selfish and not been as good to people as they were to me it was just a, a whole lot of emotions. I left there completely drained every week because it just felt so heavy. And so this was a couple of years ago? 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, that I've had familiar conversations, and um, for me, the the overwhelming theme 
was like, yes, I was exhausted. I was, you know, regretful. I felt guilty. I felt shame. I felt lots of things from like digging all that stuff up and sharing it with somebody else. But the the thing that was the most strong, or the strongest for me, was that I felt like for the first time, like freedom. There was there was no longer that that yoke of like all these lies being carried around and like I didn't feel it forever like you know because that getting it off your chest is just the first step but that it felt amazing it also felt bad because you know my conversations with my wife and a lot of the stuff that I shared with her she hadn't heard and some of it was you know childhood stuff that was you know she didn't want to see me. As being hurt that way and some of it was you know bad behavior i had in our relationship which i hadn't which she knew but i hadn't really told the truth about like just you know oh. being completely honest about stuff yeah. so i i felt bad that i had you know kind of hurt her in that way but she actually got to see like all of me for the first time and you know that was that was a really special thing so i, I just i'd like to highlight that fact because you know i definitely don't want to pretend like embracing your authentic self is the easiest thing in the world no it's, and it does not happen overnight no and it, it's definitely not the easiest thing but it feels good yeah. like putting in the work towards authenticity i think is one of the most worthy pursuits one can take up the huge weight lifted off when you offload that onto someone else you just say i need you to share this with me it's really heavy and i've been carrying it around by myself so and it also felt like I knew this is the beginning of something. I knew that it was the beginning of a huge, uh, and we'll talk about that, but I just knew that there were a lot of huge changes coming in my life, and I got more and more excited as time went on because I thought my life was going to change. All okay. the I just knew. I'm unwilling to put in the work. This time. So I'm curious, like sometimes I did, like I just have this curiosity, like was there anything as you were coming here that you were like, I hope he doesn't ask me about that? I don't think I had anything in particular in mind, but as I said, it's hard for me to be on the other end because I've been a journalist and a writer my whole life. I'm always the one asking the questions. Mm -hmm. I'm always the curious one. So just the idea that someone is going to be asking me questions definitely made me nervous. But I don't think there was one particular thing. I think I'm, I'm a pretty open book, but I do have my own internal disclosure agreement. So I know the things I'm willing to talk about and the things I'm not. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't really get nervous, and I don't have a problem saying, hey, I'm not really. And usually I have that conversation before we start recording, and I forgot to do that today. Yeah, so I'm glad you, you already can... have your own, like, you know, hey, let's, like, let's move off from that topic. Because yeah, I, like, if you listen to this show, you know that I ask some pretty, you know, personal stuff. Mm -hmm. And generally, you know, it's a safe space, so people have been pretty open to talk about it. But I'd understand if, it, you know, sometimes it's a little too raw to share with the entire audience. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm open to, I, I'm trying to remember who this was about a week ago that asked me a question and I just said, yeah, I'm not really comfortable talking about that, but I appreciate you asking. You can always ask me anything and I will tell you if I'm not comfortable talking about it. I do want people to always feel like they can ask me. We never know. We never know what mm -hmm. you're going to learn from someone, what they're willing to share. And so I think having boundaries is important. And I always talk to students about this too. Like, you don't need to share everything with everyone. You need to have a disclosure agreement and decide ahead of time what you're willing to share and what you're not. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of authenticity is, mm -hmm. is not being 
completely open with everybody all the time. It's being completely self-aware of what you are willing to share with whom mm -hmm. and telling people when you're not willing to share it yeah. versus like before I was just like, Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to hide how I really feel about yes. it. And then I'm going to come across as fake and they're going to be like, this dude is weird yes. because I was like, and you know, you talked earlier about being really good at fooling people and like, you know, like I'm lying to myself and I was like so good at lying to myself. I didn't realize that I was doing it. I thought, but I also thought everybody else was buying my lies. Mm -hmm. And through a lot of, you know, analysis of like past situations, like, wait, I don't think they actually were because the people that I was lying to who I were friends, like the relationships dissolved and fell apart. The, you know, the work situations where I thought I was, you know, I was fooling in, into thinking I was this or that. I was getting in trouble all the time. And I was always like, I was always in the outs and was, maybe I wasn't that good at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's interesting because now when I come across someone who tells me how confident they are, I immediately know. I can immediately pick up the vibe. And so I don't think that people were always buying it with me when I was telling them how confident I was or telling them how well I had my life stitched together. I don't think they were always buying it either. But they're polite enough not to call me out, I guess. And that's, I wish somebody would have told me. Exactly. Like, then that's, that's part of my platform now is that I'm, going to tell you whenever you come across a way yes. like hey that doesn't feel that off mm -hmm. you know it's like you don't you don't owe me anything but i'm telling you i'm going to tell you that didn't feel very honest to mm -hmm. me and i'm I'm sure i'm going to rub some people the wrong way and i have rubbed people the wrong way before but i i think i deserve you know somebody to be honest with. it's the hardest balance to learn especially in friendship because i have had friends over the years who would call me out when I was not behaving as well as I could have or not been the mother that I should have been. And I was grateful for them calling me out because it snaps you back into reality and makes you realize, wow, I gotta do better. And so now when I have that situation with friends, it's hard to know the balance. How much do I say? And how do I say this in the most gentle, loving way possible while still delivering the truth that I think they need to hear? I'm still trying to figure out that balance. Yeah, and so I talked about this on episode 19, talking to uh, Marilyn Finney Feather, and she's, we were talking about this specific thing, and I said that my guideline that I try to go by now is, is it kind? Is it helpful? Oh, no, sorry, is it timely? Is it helpful? Am I being respectful? Well, like, if I can do all, like, all three of those things, then I'm going to give that piece of advice. Sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's just not the right time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're not able to, you're not ready to say it in a respectful way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it's not helpful. So, you know, certain, certain things are okay. Just like having been a thing mm -hmm. that you didn't enjoy and it going away. Do you give unsolicited advice? Not anymore. Okay. So you yeah. have to be asked by the friend for like, your advice? I, I will, I will try very hard. I'm not going to say I don't. Mm -hmm. I try very hard not to. But also, like, I feel like there's a difference between, you know, giving your opinion on the situation and, like, trying to assert your, yourself on somebody who hasn't asked you to. And, like, with my wife is the, the biggest receiver of this, in which I start to say, like, hey, well, what if you did this? And I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry. Did you just need me to listen? Yes. And, like, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I'm just stopping myself in the middle of it 
half the time. I still do it a lot of the time, and I'm like, mm-hmm. like, because it's you know it's an important it's important to realize that I'm I'm the work of a work in progress myself. Mm-hmm. But, and then are fixers. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's kind of it is literally built into our biochemistry to mm-hmm. want to fix things, and that it's okay and it's useful a lot of the time. But self awareness is important, and learning to apply the thing that's necessary for the time mm-hmm. is really it's really huge, especially in relationships. Sometimes we just want to cry. We just want to cry. Listen, not mm. offer any solution. I try to ask people, do you need help or you need a hug? Mm. Do you want help or you want a hug? And so I'm getting better, but you're right. I don't always remember to ask that. I just jump right in. And so sometimes people just don't want to be helped. They just want to listen. I, th- I think my biggest struggle is that the only person I feel responsible, my only people I feel responsibility to always just listen to are my wife and my kids. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like if you're telling me about a thing that I feel like you're doing wrong, it's only going to happen so many times before you're going to get the advice. Yeah. Like, I, and I feel like that's fair. It's like, hey, I'm your friend. Like, we should probably either talk about something else or you should be open to hearing, hearing how I feel about this because mm-hmm. you keep bringing it up. Yeah. You're not my wife. <laughs> when I was in school to get my bachelor's degree in psychology, that is a precursor to your master's degree to become a therapist. So mm. we did a lot of role playing and learned a lot of therapy practices. And one of the things they tell you is that you, you just don't keep clients who spin their wheels. If they are continuously week after week after week, the same problem comes up and you are helping and helping and they never address it or do take any action. Eventually you have to let them go. And so I feel the same way with, friends and with myself too. I don't want to be the person who is complaining about the same thing over and over and over again because it's not productive mm-hmm. after Absolutely agree. Well, um getting back to like we kind of went on a little bit of a tangent, but I I like tangents on the show because we usually find some pretty good stuff. Yeah. That you know I can't write for all the situations. Like, yeah, yeah. Um we were t- we were talking about your authentic journey and like when you went to a therapist like what led to that meeting you're really gonna ask me that no (laughs) well a few things like i said i think i was just at a shaky place in life and i had just come out of a really toxic confusing relationship that i found out at the end of it i had no idea who this person was and I thought this only happened in true crime shows. I never expected it to happen to me. I consider myself to be, like I said, pretty intuitive. I pick up on things. I did ignore a lot of red flags in the beginning, but it wasn't even so much the relationship ending. It was the utter confusion over how could someone be so different than I initially thought? And how did I miss this? And how can someone be this? disrespectful and have no regard for others feelings it was just this huge web and so that's initially why I went to therapy I wanted to make sure that I never chose that type of person again and I wanted to know why did I choose because the red flags were all in front of me and later of course the way your friends do they never tell you at the time and then afterwards they say we knew we knew that guy was good. why didn't you tell me I like I, I want to push back on that a little bit because often when we're in the throes of situations like that, we don't listen. It's like, so true. 
you know, it's like, oh, I, I did tell you. Like, you know, and they're not going to scream at you because then they're going to get pushed out because you, you're in with this person and it's hard to become a romantic relationship. True. And also in the very beginning, another woman did reach out and warn me. And I said, wow, she's upset because she didn't get, of course, the person spins a different version of the story. Mm -hmm. And then it's, oh, she's upset because she didn't get what she wanted. And it turns out she was correct. And I did circle back and message her. I was very, I'm a girl's girl. So I was very kind to her at the time and just said, mm -hmm. I appreciate you reaching out. I'm definitely going to discuss all these things. And after the fact, I messaged her again and said, I owe you the biggest apology. I completely blew that off. I should have listened. And I didn't. And the same thing happened to me. So that's initially why I went to therapy. I wanted to make sure it didn't happen to me again. And that's why I went. Can I, early in that relationship, like I think women's intuition is like borderline superpower. Mm -hmm. Like I think it's wild. Mm -hmm. Did you ignore a feeling? Yes. And my therapist said to me, the first session, tell me this man is a genius. He said to me in the first session, your intuition never fails you. You fail your intuition. Ooh. Every woman that Ooh. sits in these chairs in my office is failing their intuition by not listening. You all know and you ignore it. Why? I don't know. That's why you're here. That's what we're going to unpack and figure out. But you knew and I did know. There was absolutely many, many moments of, and, and towards the end of that relationship, I had such bad anxiety, Bruce, that I couldn't even function. It was getting so bad. I don't know if you've ever had any bouts of anxiety, mm -hmm. but just where your mind is racing and you can't focus on anything. And I, it was bad. And I know now it was my body just shaking me. Like, girl, wake up. Let's go. Let's do something different. And I didn't listen. So you work in sales, right? I do. How did you manage that anxiety? Like working in a job where you have to, you have to talk at the time i was the marketing director for an engineer so okay. i was not in sales i was doing business development i've always done business development, but i was in and that was right after covid so things mm. still had not gone back to normal in our office at the time i want to say only 10 people were working in the office so there was a lot of quiet time and a lot of freedom and so i didn't have to be just tuned in to any specific thing thankfully because i was not doing well at all were you taking extra steps to avoid the 10 people that were there like coming in at hours that you knew that so-and-so didn't work or i think just keeping to myself more and the problem with being the sunshiny going around saying good morning to everyone always super always smiling always the hype girl people really notice when you're not yeah. and they tend to come to you which i have a love-hate relationship with that because i want to be able to have an off day or mm -hmm. I just don't feel like being that. And I can do that now. I work remote and I can do that now. But in that situation, when you're in an office, yeah, people are coming to me like, what's going on? What's going on? And that, I think that was more of an overshare back then. You talked about that earlier. Just how do you know when you're sharing too much and not enough? And, and that's a balance too. But I used to be so much more of an overshare. I would tell people too much. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think right around that time, I was starting to, maybe I shouldn't tell them every detail of what happened, but I was sharing enough because mm -hmm. they had met him and they knew. So I was sharing a little. Can you, can you see the, like the correlation between the, the false self that you were putting out there then coming to bite you back whenever it got too much and you like couldn't pretend anymore? Because I'm assuming that you were pretending some of that time when you were the sunshiny, you know, hey everyone, because mm -hmm. you were dealing with a lot. Oh yeah, I think I've said this many times, especially I do a lot of work with teenagers, I mentor teenagers, and I tell them a lot, there are times when, I can look back at photos on Facebook, for example, and see myself smiling in these happy situations, and I remember how I felt, and I was just in the fit of a depressive episode. No one would have known. No one would have known. We all get really good at covering that up so that, you know, look weak. People don't worry. You don't have to explain it. I've had this conversation with so many people that I never would have guessed battled depression either. And we just get really good at covering it up. People don't know so that we don't have to explain anything and we don't have to answer any questions and we don't look weak. If you could give advice to yourself when you were going through like before you started to you know before you had that aha moment where you started to work on yourself back you know even before you were aware that you were in a toxic relationship what advice would you give to yourself about maybe 15 years ago get into therapy get on medication if that's what you need there's no shame in that can't handle it on your own get get some medication to lift the fog enough Get in the gym, drink water, quit partying your life away, and start managing your life better. I, I, I don't know that I would have listened. I don't think I would have, because I think people gave me that advice along the way. But I think I would have said, get into therapy. I think everyone should be in therapy. I think therapy is great for everyone. I mean, I don't think that therapy is, well, I don't think a good therapist is ever bad for anyone. Right. Um, Therapy is not always great. Right. Uh, there no, are no, people no, who are not great at it. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a big advocate of finding the right therapist, yeah. finding somebody who, you know, is specialized if you need something specialized, mm -hmm. who you like enough, but also challenges you enough to, yes. to get the work done, kind of like you found. Uh, sure. Struck lucky the first time. Um, yeah, for me, like, I wish I, you know, I think I would listen to myself from the future. I don't think I would have listened to anybody else, but myself in the future, I think I told myself, stop hiding. Like, just stop hiding mm -hmm. from everything. Stop mm -hmm. hiding from your anxiety. Stop hiding from, you know, the, your, the people who are asking about you. Stop hiding from your debt. Like, just stop hiding. Mm -hmm. Just tell the truth. Share the burden. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's, therapy is a great way to share that burden. But I also, like, I didn't know who my friends were because I never tried to share the burden. So if I would have done it in college, those people would have, they would have disappeared and I would have realized, oh, those aren't friends. But in, in just starting to act authentically, you start to align yourself with people who actually do care about you. So true. I mean, and it's, it's so true. and you're putting a fake person out there, there's a possibility that they might like and care for that fake person. But as soon as it starts to become, you know, clear that that person isn't real, that care is going to go away. And so, you know, I always challenge people to like, Find out sooner rather than later that this is not somebody who's actually for you 
so yeah. you can make room for the people who are. I also tell young women now, focus on the inside as much as you're focused on the outside. Because mm-hmm. the outside, that all goes away one day. And it's fun, you know, beauty, fashion, all those things are fun. But put the same effort onto your inside. Because the outside doesn't matter if your inside is a mess. Yeah. People eventually see through that. You eventually wreck yourself. So put the focus on the inside. I definitely agree with that. So coming back to you being in sales now. Um, does the desire to like let that false person pop back in to make the sale ever come up? There is because I'm also a workshop facilitator, keynote speaker. So that's what we do. We sell leadership development workshops, um, staff retreats, and we work with education a lot. So there is a definitely a performative aspect, and it is a balance of building relationships, being your authentic self, while also maintaining a level of professionalism where you're not completely showing your true self. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely all of those things pop up, but I am in a place now where my number one goal is to be my authentic self and to be kind and loving and gentle and understanding and empathetic. So I always leave with that. And I'm honestly more successful than I've ever been in all of my life leading that way so it's working but yes for sure the urge to manipulate it pops up all the time it's a constant battle to not use that little trick i have in my back because i know i can i don't want to though i don't want to have to hide who i am or be afraid that someone's going to find out who i really am and that for a long time it was that too always I was always thinking I wasn't good enough for certain people because what if they find out who I really am because deep down I knew you're being a really terrible person so I think now it's just more important to me for my integrity to be intact and for me to be the same person all the time that's kind of what I guess I think authentic you're the same person all the time you might adjust your boundaries adjust what you're going to share depending on if it's your inner circle now I'm going to talk to Derek different than I'm going to talk to you who I just met but I want to be the same person in every situation yeah and I, I definitely I applaud that and I encourage you to, to keep on that journey and what, what I had to learn in order to like embrace that philosophy is I had to stop trying to change for everything like you know I had my work self I had the you know my my wife you know myself my, only my wife saw then my friend self and you know they were all pretty close but they were all just like i was sectioned off like i'm not sectioned off anymore it's like i show up i do let the situation shape me you know i do i do let experiences shape me and i do like you know i'm allowed i allow myself to be molded a little bit that's conscious you know it's different than you know just saying like you're going into this thing you don't want them to see this this and this mm-hmm. that's i'm not doing that anymore i'm just like, like all right i'm going to an event where I'm nervous. I don't know anybody. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to be intentionally a little more outspoken. Mm-hmm. I usually. I enjoyed that part of you and Peter talk about when you talked about that because that is such a natural thing for me that I forget other people really have a lot of anxiety around it. Walking into a room full of people that you don't know and yeah. who do I talk to and what do I do? But I, I also was gonna say that being in sales, I do have to adjust my personality depending on the client. I have some clients who love to be excited and loud and talkative and others who are just straight to the point 
all business. And so I've had to really learn not to take it personal like I used to when someone's personality is just different and I need to mellow out a little bit to meet them where they're at. But I don't lose myself. I, I'm not completely emotionally invested in it. So I can bend a little easier now without feeling like I'm changing my whole And I think that there's like, there's a thin line there between having a strategy, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, you know, you're trying, you're trying to do your job. You have responsibilities to fulfill. So there, there has to be willingness to, to navigate that world in a certain way, but also not actually change. Like, so if you are working with somebody who's not like very, they don't like a lot of noise. They don't like to talk a lot. You talking less is not changing who you are. Mm -hmm. It's just talking. less. Right. Like, like I'm going to intentionally talk less because who I am is I'm, I'm a closer of deals. Mm -hmm. Like I close deals. So in order to close this deal, the thing, the the tactic I'm going to pursue is just talking less. I think it used to be, though, that I would feel like there was something wrong afterwards. I would think they thought I was too much. I'm too much. I wasn't doing enough of this, or I was too loud, or I was too talkative, or I was just making myself crazy. And now I am who I am, and I can be a little toned down for this client and a little more upbeat for this one. And I'm kind of both of those things, honestly. But I don't feel guilty about either not being one or the other. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of embracing yourself as you are is that you stop feeling like maybe I didn't do the right thing. It's like because mm-hmm. the right thing is be yourself. Yes. And then so there's no other option. If that's what you what you embrace, there's no other option of what I should have done. Yes. And hopefully hopefully they enjoyed, you know, whatever situation you were in together as well. But if they didn't, you still did the right thing. Yes. And that's just not the right situation for you to be in with that person. And I'm sure you can agree with me that when you are on this journey to being your most most authentic self, it doesn't mean that you feel that way all the time. No. I still, it still pops up. I just have enough mental strength now to talk over. Yeah. So when the thought pops up that, oh, you were too much and they were thinking this and they were thinking that, I just shut it down immediately. My therapist taught me how to do that. When the story runs through your head, I want you to stop. Do I have any facts to back that up? Because if you don't, it's fiction and mm-hmm. we're not believing it. You can read it, that's fine, but you can't believe it and you can't take it to heart. Because you don't have any facts to support it. I actually had a um a conversation on LinkedIn recently about this where I mean I guess it's a conversation. He said something and I responded back and he didn't say anything <laughs> else. But um it had to do with me, you know, he's like I, I commented something and I was, you know, very authentic. I was like, I'm still working on it, I'm gonna I'm gonna get there. And he's like, you know, I just I pushed that doubt out of my head. I don't doubt myself anymore, blah, blah. And I was like, I actually, I don't want to stop doubting myself. Like, I think doubt is a great analytical tool. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to, the, the fear that can be uh, birthed by doubt mm-hmm. to control my life anymore. But I want that doubt to, to give me an opportunity to have internal conversations and, you know, even external conversations with other people and say, you know, am I doing the right thing? And then, you know, like you said, bringing facts into it is like, well, I didn't, I didn't have any negative reactions. Everybody was laughing a lot. Like I, it seemed like I was, I was a hit. So why am I telling myself a different story? Derek and I just had this conversation a week ago because I was about to lead a general session for 200 people at a conference in Tennessee. And I've done this so many times. 
I know I'm good at it. I've got pages and pages of feedback from audiences, and all the feedback is very similar. All pretty positive. Same thing with Derek. But we both, we talked about how before we get up there, immediately imposter syndrome. <gasps> they're going to hate me. They're going to, they're not going to like anything I have to say. And then afterwards, you had that high and you feel like it went really well. There are always those little moments of doubt that creep in. And the conclusion we came to is if we don't have that, we're sociopaths. If you don't have any feelings of doubt and no humbleness, you're just a sociopath, honestly. I mean, you're. I don't know, you, like I'm gonna call you a sociopath, but, right, you, but you're, you're missing you're missing something. You're missing something, and I think it's you know someone told me one time, fearless isn't a thing. Everyone feels fear unless you're a sociopath. That's what mm. unless you're a sociopath, everyone feels fear. It's just how you manage it. So mm. you're not fearless. You're just willing to walk through it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, they both talked about nerves and mm -hmm. being afraid. And using it as fuel to succeed versus letting it, you know, oppress you and crush your dreams and make you feel like you're not good enough to do anything. Like it, it's there, it's going to exist, but you have to choose how you utilize it. It's, you know, it naturally exists. It's not as good or bad. We're the ones who put all these good or bad connotations on all these different things. That's true. Our body's just going to listen to what we do with it. Renee Brown. I, I've never read anything of hers, but I've, I have been told, like, it's come up, this is probably the fifth time on the uh, show, and I'm like, when I have more time, I'm going to get me some Brene Brown, because too many people I respect have, have dropped the name. The 20-minute, her 20-minute YouTube TED Talk on vulnerability, 20 minutes, and it's how she got well-known. It's so good. And she talks about all of her research into kind of a lot of what we're talking about. But Brene Brown goes out and speaks to crowds of thousands of people, and she talks about the nerves, but she's chosen to think of it as excitement. Fear and excitement create the same physiological response. Mm -hmm. And so when she channels it as, I'm excited, just gives her a little pep in her step. So mm -hmm. I've kind of stolen that from her, and it works. Kind of. Speaking of TED Talks, mm -hmm. you are a self-proclaimed TED Talk enthusiast. What is it about TED Talks that's got you so obsessed? I love people sharing their personal journeys. I'm a storyteller, and I enjoy hearing other people's stories. I ask random strangers in the airport questions. I have an uncanny ability to get someone's life story out of them. And I think it's because they can tell I'm genuinely curious, and I'm mm -hmm. listening, and I'm intent on hearing them. And so TED Talks are a lot of people sharing their own personal experiences and things that they learned. And they're also typically short, which is easy to absorb. And so I was going to submit to a TED Talk this year. And then I just felt like I wasn't quite ready yet to put myself out there like that. I, I went to see Taylor Doe give his live. And I realized, wow, there's a lot that goes into this. First of all, you can't move outside of this circle. There's a lot of things, and you have to memorize the whole thing. So I decided I need more time. Mm -hmm. So that is on my list of goals for next year is to submit for one. I love that talk, and I want I want everybody to know. So a question on the back of that is, do you ever have a problem with, like, philosophy fatigue after hearing so many different people pouring out their stories and you know with each one of those stories generally comes some sort of whether it be general or specific philosophy whenever i watch a ted talk which i don't watch a lot of them i'm generally moved to the point where it's like i want to enact that thing yeah. 
do you struggle with that? Yes. Derek and I, <laughs> I keep talking about Derek. Derek and I talk about when you're a passionate person who is passionate about so many things, everything feels like, is it bat signal? Yeah. Bat. Everything feels like a bat signal. Uh-huh. And then we get ourselves into trouble because we sign on to do too many things and then we're overwhelmed and, and it's just a whole vicious cycle. But that talks are bat signals every time. Right now, Bruce, I am, I just replaced all my Ziploc bags with reusables and I'm only buying biodegradable trash bags and I refuse to buy paper plates or paper bowls anymore, all because somebody mentioned being passionate about uh, landfills and how the world is over polluted and so and she was passionate about it i just felt it and so i i took it on so now here i am yes i understand what you are saying it gets exhausting um <laughs> that that's why i like i'm not gonna say like i i ever had intention to watch a whole bunch of them but i like the ones that come my way like are generally through like i'll watch renee browns now because the name has come up too many too mm-hmm. many times I watched Taylor's because, you know, I, uh, Derek and I were having a conversation, you know, he was a little mentor session. His name came up a couple of times and I was like, Taylor sounds like a smart dude. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, you should get his, you know, his, uh, Ted talk. I was like, okay. It was like, dude, I cried. It was like, tears. so I, good. Yeah. Um, so then I was like, okay. And every Ted talk I've watched has always been really influential for me. Mm-hmm. So whenever you, I, I see that you like watch, all of them, basically. I'm like, how do you do that without your brain exploding? Well, or, or your heart exploding, one or the other. My, I feel like my heart is always exploding, especially nowadays. Everything makes my heart explode. And again, sometimes I want to downplay that because I've had people say to me, "This you can't really be this excited about life. No, I really am. I don't downplay it anymore, though. I'm excited about everything. I love, I love so many things. I'm very passionate about so many different things. And so... I've had to just be a little more careful how many bat signals I receive because mm-hmm. I get myself into a situation where I can't, I commit to something and then I can't keep the commitment. I travel so much with my job and I work a lot and then I mentor for the police department, youth leadership academy, uh, and I have a couple of other things in the work. And so I have to be really selective. I don't like that, Bruce. Mm-hmm. I want to do all of it, but I can't. I know I can't. Um. Talking about being up all the time, do you let yourself be sad in, in public now? Oh, yes. 100%. Do you notice a different response from the people around you? I think I have had to work on my defensiveness because I think when you're learning to set boundaries, um, you can tend to be, I don't know if you've found this, too aggressive mm-hmm. sometimes. And so I've found that when people will come up to me and say, why aren't you smiling today? I just snap. Like, what do I smile every day? What do you What do you think I am? You know. And so I backed off of that and just started to understand that when people see you a certain way all the time, that becomes the expectation, and yeah. then they're concerned about you. Yeah. You're not. So I've just learned to say, I'm just kind of having an off day where I just want to chill. And then people are pretty understanding. Like, okay, yeah, I get that. You can that. You can definitely do that. Yeah, I'm not afraid to. And also, I'm not afraid to just hole up in my house for a couple of days. If I just don't, I've had a long travel streak where I've just been talking for days on end. I will not leave my house for three days and be happy as a clam. And I will not answer my phone. And I just text people, hey, just need some time alone. And 
people were a lot more understanding than I gave them credit for before. Derek and I talked about this specifically about ghosting your friends because you're going like because you you need time or you're going through something or whatever. And I appreciate the fact that you just say like, "Hey, I just need some time. Mm -hmm. Like, nothing personal. It has nothing to do with you. Whatever." Just letting people know like I'm gonna disappear for a minute, but I'm fine. Yeah. Otherwise, like I've had friends do that, who and I'm just like, what the heck happened? Did I do something? Yeah. Are they okay? Like, why they're not answering their phone? They haven't called me back in two weeks. Like, what's happening? And they pop up and I was like, What's up? Oh man, nothing, you know, whatever. Like, you know, I'm here, I'm back, whatever. It was like, <laughs> Where were you? Now I feel like I'm crazy. No, it was I'm like, gonna call the- exactly you know yeah. check welfare yes i try to check in with people because i watch too much true crime and so especially with you know my daughter's one living on her own and they both are kind of wanderlust so they travel and one's about to be off in arizona and so we kind of have this rule that if i text you and you don't text me back within i don't know half a day i'm gonna start freaking out and so we all kind of have that rule with each mm-hmm. other i try to check in with people but politely letting them know don't call me don't text me for a couple of days. I'll check back in with you on Monday. Okay. Um, speaking of your daughters, like you, you know, as a parent, I understand this. You seem like you identify heavily as, you know, as a girl mom, like, mm-hmm. you know, raising great daughters. Mm-hmm. Totally, very much also appreciate that. I've, had, I've got one son, three daughters. Um, but you have two adults who are about to start going to live their own lives. Like how are how are you navigating that big transition that's that's starting to happen? I don't know yet. I don't know. I the oldest moved out when she was nineteen, so she's been on her own, but she's still here in Oklahoma City. I see her a lot. We're very close. The eighteen year old, as I said, leaves October twenty third for five weeks of flight school in Arizona, and then she'll be moving to Houston or Denver for her job. And I went through. I went through a really rough couple of months back in May when she graduated because it threw me into a tailspin. What am I going to do now? What, who am I now? I've always had my own life. I've always had my own hobbies. I've always kept in touch with myself, but the idea of just not having that at all, it has been the biggest. And then also one thing I never considered when they were younger is that there comes a point when they don't have to have a relationship. So you got to be real careful how you how you navigate your relationship with them because if you nag them too much, if you push your opinions and views on them too much, they can decide to cut you off or just not enjoy being around you anymore. So there has been a huge learning curve for me of giving them space and then being their soft spot to land when they need me, um, letting them have their independence. You know, my oldest is the manager of a dog grooming salon. She works really hard, but she just does not let me help her with anything. And so she had a tire pop a while back and she needed four new tires. And so I wanted to pay for the tires and she said no. And my instinct was to insist and do it anyway, but I didn't because I want to be respectful of her boundaries. And if it's important, and she says, I don't want you to have anything to hold over my head. So then it gets into the discussion of, do you think that I hold things over your head? She said, no, I just don't want anybody to have anything to hold over my head. I want to be responsible for my own bills, my own life, and I want to know I can do it myself. So it has been a learning curve. I don't know what 
October 23rd is going to be like for me. I've kind of compartmentalized it and put it aside for now to just enjoy the time I have with her. Mm -hmm. There's a panic rising, of course, but I've just gotten myself really involved in a lot of things and I'm kind of situating my life so that I'm not just sitting at home crying with a cat. I think it's really important that, you know, what you said about kind of starting to situate your life because you're, I mean, you're, you're transitioning into a new phase where you're not responsible for anybody else. Like, and the, the self-awareness, like I, I keep preaching the word self-awareness. You have to be aware of the fact that this is a big transition. You are aware of that fact. You're, you're treating it as such. That's, that's the first step. And then you can, you know, I, some people are really shocked by how they feel when their first kid leaves. Mm-hmm. And, oh. they, and they go into, like you said, go into a tailspin. But oh. at that point, there's no reprieve. Mm-hmm. Not for like six months. <laughs> and I, it's, I also have this excitement because I have been mostly on my own to say that because I've had my mom and family and we have a really supportive group of friends too. Their dad was in and out at various times and he is now sober for a year and back involved in their lives again. But a lot of those years, it was just me. And so to have freedom, sometimes I'm so excited. I can't stand it. Wow. I have. I actually have disposable income for the first time. We're going to have free flight benefits through my daughter's job. I travel some really cool places with my work and I can do anything I want to do now. And I just did not have that ability or freedom for so long. So it is equally exciting and also sad. Yeah. And I, th- I think that that's a really good perspective to look at it instead of just saying like, Oh no, I've got all this great stuff to look forward to. I think that would be setting yourself up for failure because there is great stuff, but you've you've taken a huge part of your life and given it to, you know, developing little little people into yes. adults. And it's and it's a huge responsibility. You deserve the, you know, the the next part of your life, but also it is it's gonna be hard. It is. You know? And I've, and then the twenty one year old talked about moving away too. And I just don't know. I just have to hope that they'll both end up back here at some point and know that they can make the best decision for themselves. And I know that we'll always be close. And technology's made it so that it's so easy to stay connected with people. That's all I got, Bruce. I don't know. We'll see how I do on October 23rd. I might just fall completely apart, but I hope not. I'm trying to put some filth in place. I I think that you're doing a lot of things right that, from my experience as, you know, getting become adult to somebody who was not able to let go and continue, like, I've, I've just recently had an argument, like, he was arguing, I just said, okay, whatever you say, okay. And my father is still, to this day, trying to assert his opinions and the way he would do things on my life. Like, I'm almost 40 years old. And he still thinks that I'm ruining, ruining my life by not doing what he wants. It's like, I'm, I'm almost 40. I've got four kids and a wife. I love my life. What more would you have wanted from me? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's mostly about money. And that's whatever. My mom is a boomer, baby boomer. And I, we facilitate a workshop on cross-generational leadership that is so fascinating to me because I work with a lot of Gen Zs. I raised two Gen Zs. My mom's a baby boomer are just very different generational differences and it's hard to know when you defend yourself and when you just accept 
but this is all this person knows. This is the, the only lens they are viewing the world through. And we're not going to change your mind. My mom thinks tattoos are the most disgusting, unprofessional. She actually told me when I got a tattoo on my back at 40 that my career was over. And, that, and I quote, no respectable man is ever going to want me. And, but you know where my mom was last Sunday when my 18-year-old and I got tattoos together? She was there with us at the tattoo shop. And, and she was telling the tattoo artist how disgusting tattoos are. Oh, my God. Too. No. Um, <laughs> but I love my mom and she's so proud of me and I just accepted, we have very, very different views on the world, on life. There are a lot of ways that I think my mom could have lived her life a little bolder. And so me being such a free spirit and just wandering all the time is so beyond her comprehension, but I don't, I don't need her to understand anymore. I just need her to love me. So. Yeah. That's, that's the part I'm struggling with. My, my father won't. Like I wrote him a long letter and I was like, it's okay for you to say whatever you think. If I listen to you or not, I just want to know that, you know, you're going to be okay. And he's not. Mm. He's not okay. That's, 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 that's something tough. with him, though. You know yeah. That. yeah, I know it's something with him. It's just yeah. I already don't have a relationship with my mother because she's a toxic narcissist. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, that's had its it's done its damage in my life. And so, you know, kind of done with that for now. And I don't want to lose him as well because he's not able to just, I'm not even saying don't give your opinion. Like, go write it. Like, so we're moving to New England next month. And yeah, super excited. Yeah. Wow. Super excited. But he is, he's just telling me I'm making a huge mistake. You know, he's uh, telling me that I'm obviously in a depressive state and I'm, and I'm going to drag my family deeper into despair because we're because we're making this move. And you know, I know that he cares about me. I I really do. But mm-hmm. what he's doing is just it's pushing me farther away. And What's in New England? Um, nothing. Okay, you it's, all it's, are just it's cooler. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I just think at some point because gosh, Bruce, when you said all that, I have had so many of those conversations with my mom over the years, and it has been a struggle. I've always told people. If my mom had a funeral next week, you would not see me getting up there. And, and I would be very honest about the fact that our relationship has been up and down on both of our parts. We both were at fault many times. But my mom is very opinionated and she likes to tell people her opinions. And I, I've just had to really accept that she's not always going to like the way I live my life because she lives her life a completely different way. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, both, both of us can this and do our own thing and hopefully wish that your dad would give you a little more space and grace. Yeah, me too. But it is what it is. Yeah. It is. Exactly. And that that's you know, that's how me coming into my authentic self has changed is I, I really thought I could. Mm-hmm. Like I really thought it's like if I just keep, you know, having these arguments with him, eventually he's gonna hear me. No. No. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not how it works. Like, eventually what happens is you lose your mind. Exactly. And he's still all right, so sophronizo, the Greek word. Say, say it Sophronizo. Sophronizo, the Greek word from which sober is derived. You have quoted as meaning to make a, a sound mind, discipline correct. So I did a little bit more research, just for like clarity and understanding. Yeah, and what right. I found was, it is uh, the further description of someone who is self-possessed without excesses of any kind, quote-unquote, sane, 
and its set of one who's out of out of whom demons had just been cast. Mm. Does that make you feel more or less connected with the word? More. Yeah. I love that. I kind of thought so. Absolutely. I just got it tattooed. Okay. Yeah. Respect. I like it. So let's yeah, just like tell me your sobriety story. Get oh into it. Goodness. You know, people ask me a lot. What happened that got you sober? Was it a DUI? Did you get in a wreck? Get in a bar fight? And I have so much hair and I'm very tender-headed, so I've always been a lover, not a fighter. I am not a part of any fight club because I don't want my hair pulled. So nothing big, dramatic happened. I started drinking when I was 14. I had some turmoil within my family system. I've learned through therapy that made me feel very insecure and just a little lost, I think. And my best friend and I were still best friends to this day. We started drinking when we were 14 and drinking, you know, dabbling with other things, nothing too crazy. But I have been the notorious party girl ever since my whole life. That was kind of my thing. I love the whole chaos of the nightlife and living in the fast lane. And I would just go and drink too much and drink more than I intended and say and do things that I regretted and things that I had to piece together the next day from the night before and also call other people to piece together. And it was all funny and hilarious and what we do. And for a while it was, well, it's just what teenagers do. And then, well, it's just what people in their 20s do. And then this is just what a single mom who gets a night off does. And then there came a point, it was actually, I say, nothing happened. But when I really started thinking about this before I came here to talk to you about it, a lot of things happened at once mm. that led to the sobriety. And I think of it as Care Bears. Do you know the Care Bears? Yeah, I know. Okay. So the Care Bears, you know how they had those emblems on their belly? And when they came across a person who needed love and share and care, all their little qualities, they would circle around them and shoot rays from the emblem, and it would be life-changing for this person. And I think the Care Bear scare that happened, there was a drunken weekend at the lake, Labor Day weekend, 2021, with a toxic time boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, he did some really, really hurtful things. And it was complete chaos because we were both drinking. There was no violence or anything like that. But we get back and I decide to end that relationship. And I knew I had to take a temporary hiatus from alcohol. Because my MO for my whole adult life, I've been single, unmarried, uncohabitated for 15 years, the whole time I've been raising my girls. And so relationships, but never moving anyone in or getting married. And so my MO had been, I would end a relationship that wasn't good for me. And then I would get drunk and then beg them back because my ego just couldn't take it. Mm. So I decided this time, this is serious enough. I'm not doing that. I'm going to take a break from drinking while I figure this out. So I took a break from drinking, broke up with him, went to therapy. My therapist says to me, the second session, I need you to get some adrenaline pumping activities that do not involve men or the bar. Because you are a thrill seeker, adrenaline junkie, and you're using the bar and alcohol and men to fill those voids. You've got to find something else. So it was the next day, actually, that Peter Evans, Sends me a podcast episode for 75 parts. Familiar with 75 parts? I've, I've seen it mentioned a couple times, but I want you to go ahead and 
extrapolate for us? It's a mental toughness program developed by a guy named Andy Caselli, and it's 75 days, two workouts a day, 45 minutes each. One has to be outdoors, gallon of water, uh, no alcohol, choosing a diet and sticking with it, and taking a progress photo every day for 75 days straight. You mess up one thing, you have to go all the way back to the end. So Peter wanted me to do this program with him. And I said, 75 days? No, absolutely not. Is this a joke? I'm not. I love to drink. I love to party. We were at that time, my rowdy group of friends and I were going to happy hour a few times a week. And really what that looked like is <laughs> we go at five, plan to stay till seven, and then I would be there until the lights came on, even mm-hmm. if I had a meeting the next morning. I was never, ever living up to my potential because I could not control the amount that I was drinking. So I made the mistake of mentioning this to my therapist who said, this is exactly what you need. I'm not telling you what to do because that's not my job, but I think this would be really good. So I told Peter, okay, let's do it. So we did. And I finished it on the first attempt. On day 50, I was in my therapist's office and I said, I'm really scared for day 75 because I don't want to drink anymore. And he said, why on earth do you have to? Which is typical for someone who doesn't have problem with alcohol because it's my whole identity it's how a lot of people know me i'm the fun life of the party uh what will i do if i don't drink i'll be so bored i will be so bored and we spent the next 25 days before the end of it talking it out i ended up calling a good friend who was going to aa meetings and heavily involved he took me to a few meetings and i bawled my eyes out through every single one of them and so after the 75 days ends, I'm in his office and I am crying and crying and crying. I said, I don't understand what's wrong with me. Why can I not stop crying? And he's like, congratulations, you're getting sober. And I said, but I, I quit drinking like 70, you know, 70, 85 days ago. Can I get sober then? No. And that's when I started researching the meaning of sobriety. And sobriety is calm, sound, disciplined mind. And I realized, I know a lot of people who drink that are sober. I know a lot of people who are sober that a lot of people who don't drink that are not sober. And that's where it started. That's where the sobriety journey started. It was terrifying and scary. And here I am two years later, no alcohol, no caffeine. So, so what did that, that light switch came on as to what sobriety was for you? What was the first thing that you did to start preparing yourself to be actually sober? I think that not having the alcohol, because even though I was not a daily drinker, when you're drinking three or four times a week, you are staying in a drunk, hungover loop. I was stuck in this loop, and I try not to be the self-righteous, sober person, but alcohol is terrible for your body. So terrible for your body, it's terrible for your mental health, and I just did not fully realize that. So the clarity that came with being sober, I was finally able to stick what I said I was going to do. And that was something that had held me back a lot. I've always worked out. I've always, but my weight has fluctuated up and down, up and down. I could never stick to anything. And I was finally able to start exercising real discipline, sticking to a weightlifting routine and sticking to mindful eating. I will never use the word diet. I just, I'm I'm not into that, but just mindful eating, just Mm -hmm. being aware of, and then losing weight because of my back and my knee injuries from years of sports. It's not even so much about vanity anymore. I wanted to feel my best. And so 
all of that just started to click and I was able to stick with things. And then it got, I guess I shifted the addiction to what else can I add? Now that I've got this dialed in, what can I do next? What can I conquer next? What can I, and so that's just what it's been like for the last two years. Do you think you could reframe shifting the addiction as setting a new goal? Yes. Like, I don't think that like people often say like you just replaced you know drinking with working out mm -hmm. or like well i replaced an addiction with with a new goal right like and i and i think that they do kind of they can be swapped out but one is healthy and one is detrimental sure you can take it into excess with anything and it can be unhealthy but i think it's it's unfair to look at doing something healthily to replace a bad habit as a bad thing yeah, but you know, I think it's really important that the, the words we use to describe things, I think, are really important to like. If it's a positive thing, use positive words. Mm -hmm. but it's not an. The gym can be an addiction, mm -hmm. but I think that you were setting a healthy goal, and you know, giving yourself accountability. Mm -hmm. And I was just recently thinking about the phrase "addictive personality." My biological dad was an alcoholic and addict. And there are several things genetically that my mom is convinced you have a predisposition to alcoholism or drug abuse. But I don't, I don't know that I would say I have an addictive personality. I would say I am a very passionate, goal-driven person. So when I'm into something, it's 100%. When I took up golf, it's 100%. I need every club. I want to learn how to use every club. But I wouldn't even call it so much an addiction as just, I enjoy setting and crushing goals and I like challenging myself. And so that's been a theme throughout my life. I think I just shifted it onto to other things. Have you ever been tested for ADHD? No, but I'm pretty sure I probably might have it. I I hyperfixate. Yeah. Like so when something excites me, that mm -hmm. becomes my focus. Oh, yeah. Like golf was it was it for me. And like, yeah, bought new clubs and wanted to know all about it, watched it all the time, read books, did all this stuff. Very hard. I would, you know, I hope to take it up again in the future, but it is a physically demanding sport. It is. And, um, but yeah, I think that maybe that'd be, might be, if you've always found yourself going completely full in, all of your energy going into one thing as you learn it, that, that might be a symptom of ADHD. I have so many symptoms and I, don't think I would ever get tested for it simply because I have put behavior patterns into place. Um, time management training has been huge for me because I am so bad about being on one thing, getting distracted, and then forgetting about. So I've just been very mindful about those practices to help myself stay on track. And, but I, I think that's probably accurate. And, you know, and I don't think that it's a bad thing, but also. I think the important thing is to be able to manage it. And if you're already managing yourself as if you, you know, you're, you're managing your time management, you're managing, you know, your impulse control, mm -hmm. you're managing your you know, hyperfixation, mm -hmm. sounds like you're already managing for ADHD. So there's really no need. I like for me, the diagnosis was so important because later on it spurred research for me to understand how I was, how I was missing key things to how, I was supposed to interact with the world. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't need to interact the way that I, I was supposed to 
as you know, what, the way neurotypicals do, but mm -hmm. I needed to understand why I wasn't clicking with these neurotypicals. I love neurotypicals. Yeah. Is that just people who don't have ADHD? Mm -hmm. Or ADHD or autism or OCD. I definitely don't want to be a neurotypical. It's, it's not, I mean, it's just like. I don't identify with ADHD now. <laughs> <laughs> the neurotypical sounds way too normal to be me. I mean, it, is, it, is, <laughs> it has become kind of cool to become neurodivergent, but hmm. I. It's not always great. <laughs> I never Divergent's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love uh, the movie and the definition of divergent. And I, myself and my daughter, we all are very divergent. But I love neurodivergent. Really good way to explain it. That's like you've never heard that. No, that, I've heard divergent, but not neuro. I haven't thought of yeah. that frame that. I mean, it's I'm definitely not the 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 corner of that phrase. It is it is largely the way that people who have ADHD, OCD, or autism are being described now as oh. neurodivergent. I'm gonna go look that up. That's so good. So, can I ask you a question? Do you take medication? Yeah. What does it has it help? Did it make a huge? Um, it made yes, it made a huge difference, and okay. I've been on medication for a really, really long time. Okay. So, initially, I had to go through like four or five different ones because I thought I was getting results that I wasn't getting. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still getting the same negative reviews. I I also think that a lot of things would have worked differently if the amount of information that's available now. Would have been available when I was diagnosed almost 15 oh, yeah, years ago. Sure. Like there was no training that came along with this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. There was no like, okay, so executive function is this. Here's the problem you're going to have with making decisions, with impulse control, mm -hmm. whatever. It was like, okay, so you're late all the time, and you have trouble studying. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, and they they tested me, and like I was definitely ADHD, but it was like, take this medication; it should help you show up on time and uh, pay better attention. There was nothing about like, hey, you're not going to always understand what's happening in conversations mm -hmm. with people because there's there's like, you know, certain neurotypical, you know, uh, social things that are subtle. I'm terrible at picking up subtle. Mm -hmm. Like it needs to be explicitly explained and it needs to be in black and white. So I can say, OK, this is this is how a conversation goes. When you're interested, you ask more questions. When you're not interested, you don't have a conversation. That's not how a neurotypical conversation works. You talk about something, you pretend like you're interested. Oh, really? You moved this weekend. <laughs> that sounds fun. Like, that's not something I would ever say. Uh -huh. I'd be like, okay. Uh -huh. And you know, and then they think you're rude. Yeah, they think they think I'm rude right. or disinterested, or I don't want to be part of a team because this doesn't seem important. My work does. Mm -hmm. If we're gonna have a serious conversation where you're gonna just like, you know, there were conversations at my last job where yeah, you know, my dad is, you know, he's going into the hospital. That to me was like, okay, I'm going to put my work down and I'm going to pay attention to you because it's like, this is a serious thing that, you know, deserves my attention. Whenever you come over to my chair to talk about what you ate at lunch, like, I don't care. I've got too much to do. Mm -hmm. like, I'm trying to do the thing. And that's not, that's not really how other people act. I think you should be leaving some trainings on this. I feel like this would be very helpful. I'm serious. This would yeah. be very helpful information for teachers or even in the workplace, I you've just given me a lot to think about. I mean, it's something that it's some like as a uh, authenticity and identity coach. It's something that I do have for one training and some ideas for. It's like um, just leadership as a whole is something that's important to me, but also leading people the way I wish I would have been led, yeah. like having understanding for you know people who are not going to fit into that mold that is put on everybody. And that, the way you just framed that made me think of it differently. 
Oh, wow. That's why some people seem rude and maybe because they're neurodivergent and you don't know how to just connect on a surface level. Yeah. It's going to be a struggle. I, I still struggle with my wife at times because we're both ADHD. And I'm like, hey, you're not looking at me right now. And mm-hmm. she's like, because I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I don't want to look and listen to you at the same time. I want to do something else so I can pay attention. And I'm like, that, I, I don't have that like particular operating thing. She does. Me, I need to see your face so I can, I can read your lips as you're talking because I need to be able to like, be stimulated on more than one aspect of the conversation. And you know, it, there's, a, there's so many different ways that, that it intersects with how people communicate and how they get along especially as, you know, as teens. Yeah. We're not here to talk about me today. Wow, that was good, though. I enjoyed that. Learned something new today. Now I'm going to be referring to myself as therapist. I mean, I I, I encourage you to get tested because there is a lot of, like, self-diagnosing going on these days, but you've also, I mean, you're also older than the typical uh, undiagnosed person. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you get into your forties and you're still dealing with certain things, it's, it becomes kind of clear, like nobody else I know has ever struggled with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. I do feel very different from the masses often, but I consider that in many ways. Oh yeah, so, I, I definitely do. Yeah. I mean, but it makes, it, it makes life a little more challenging, just like the movie Divergent. Mm-hmm. You uh, you don't want people to know how different you are, and also you are trying desperately to fit in, and really your views and the way you navigate the world is so different than a lot of the people around you. So overperform under. Wow, I didn't realize like, I've seen Divergent a couple of times. I didn't realize how uh, how much it actually paralleled my life. Oh, it's so oh. good! You gotta watch this. Well, time out. Right, we came back. I initially lost recording there for a second. We're back. All right. Um. That was a re- that was a really good uh, tangent. Loved it. Yeah, that was good. You got to watch this movie. I will now. Like I want to watch it again. It's so good. Um, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but can you tell me what benefits you found from like living authentically? My life is so peaceful these days, and they say this often. In AA. I don't go to AA meetings anymore. I'm very grateful for the role it played in the beginning. My sobriety. It just wasn't for me. But they say in AA that you confuse peacefulness with boring when you're accustomed to chaos. And so at first, I, I thought I was bored all the time. And lately, I just feel peaceful. You know, why? I'm not hanging out with people I don't want to hang out with anymore just to have something to do or be in the right photos or be in the right place. I know Peter touched on this a lot. That's a hard thing to break because like Peter, I was in a job for a long time where I was everywhere, knew everyone. And now my life is a lot different. I work remote for a company that I love, doing work that I love, but I'm not as connected in my local community as I was before. And so sometimes it can feel lonely, isolated, boring, but it's really just, and I appreciate that piece the more time that goes on. my circle i don't allow very many people into my inner circle i have lots of acquaintances and lots of people that i interact with but as far as people i regularly make plans go to dinner spend time with i'm very choosy about who i do that with because i also like being home with my cat so (laughs) 
I don't have a, I don't, with, between traveling and, you know, my kids and my mom, I just don't have a lot of extra time. And I, I create time for myself now more intentionally. So I'm very choosy about who I time with. Yeah. And those are people that I can be my complete, authentic self. Makes a big difference. Um, let's talk golf for just a minute before we wrap this up. You've been playing for three years now? I started in 2021. Two years. The toxic Two. boyfriend is actually who introduced me to golf, so I will forever be grateful to him for that. He actually gave me a set of Callaway made drivers and irons that he had an extra set and then when we broke up which by the way he did some really horrendous things he wanted the club and i said well by oklahoma law right here it says but they were a gift so they're mine and i said playing with the cursive clubs that's right actually they've been i don't they don't feel cursed to me how uh Size-wise, is he like your same height? So yes. similar height, uh-huh. so so they're actually fit for you as well. Yeah, I need. I probably will at some point get fitted for clubs. I just haven't yet. I kind of wanted to make sure that it's something I was going to stick with long term before I went and invested money. But I think next year I probably will get fitted for clubs. I'm just a very. It's hard to explain. I'm a free spirit, but I'm also very routine oriented. And when I get something I like, I want to keep it forever. Mm-hmm. So I'll wear a pair of shoes until they fall apart. Even though I have, I do have 50 of them. But the clubs, now I have this superstition that what if I change clubs and my game falls apart? I've worked so hard to dial this all in. What if I get new clubs and it falls apart? Well, having been in a similar place, you're shooting 110, 115. Your game can't fall that much farther apart now that you understand the game. Yeah. So I think what likely will happen is you get clubs that are fit to you that are actually, you know, closer to a weight that you're able to swing mm-hmm. properly because usually women's clubs are lighter than men's. Like, you work out a lot, so you might need just a lighter men's club, but it makes a huge difference in your swing speed, which improves distance. Yes. Um, swing, a, you know, swinging a stick that actually fits you yes. going to improve accuracy. Like, initially, it's probably going to feel weird, and you're going to, you know, your first round out, you're going to shoot higher, and you're going to be like, I knew I shouldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. But if you actually, you know, just believe that it's the right switch, you'll, you'll see a lot that could be what helps you break 100. Here's the thing, though. I, in the last few months, like I said, I have got, I am accurate 85% of the time. I'd say 90% of the time. Drive, shot, what's been off is my tempo, and then course management. So those are the two things I'm working on now. I go to the golf range a couple times a week at 100 balls. So I'm really working on tempo and course management. And, you know, not going for it when I should lay up. Do you so. usually find that your score falls off in like the last six holes or so? I actually do better on the back nine, but I do fall off probably the last two holes because I, I usually, well, I've been trying to switch this up. So I'll go do a heavy weight routine in the morning and then go golf. And I've got to stop doing that. I used to do that all the time. I'm too. worn out. By the time mm-hmm. the last holes come around, I find myself just, I'm ready to get out of here. I'm ready to be done. Yeah. And I don't play as well. So I am trying to kind of dial all those things in. So that I'm not completely worn out when I get there and I can make it through. Because if I don't work out before I go, I'm, you know, full of energy the whole 18 holes. So I, I miss um, you know, so much fun. The the uh the course management part of it is was always really fun for me. Like especially once I like I could work the ball both ways and I could hit a lot of different shots. My problem was being consistent with the shots I was hitting. Yeah. 
sometimes having all the shots is not great whenever you can't hit any of them when you when you actually need to yeah and i have been using a pitching wedge for everything so i just bought a 62 and that is a game changer yeah I, that should take you know yeah, show oh five God, or six strokes i'm excited i'm gonna use yeah. them i went to the range and used them this week just to get a good feel for them but i can just already sell that's gonna make a huge but pitching wedge just can't do everything and i've been using it for the pitching wedge and the nine for all the close around the green shots and i think the lob wedge is gonna gonna change the game oh, man, using a nine iron around the greens that's like uh jack nicholas golf that's that's <laughs> 1970s <laughs> Before they, you know, started milling the grooves, like. Well, and I, I really have been in this mindset that I don't want to be that person who just thinks they need all the fancy clubs and all the things. I, I want my skill level and my knowledge to be the reason I score well. But that's just ridiculous when there are tools available. Well, I mean, you don't even so, have all, like, yeah. you're supposed to have 14 clubs in your bag. Yeah, so I just finally did it. And right when I started hitting them at the range, I knew. I text all my male coworkers who I golf with a lot. I said, these are a game changer. And they said, why did you wait this long? What have you been doing? Walking around your pitching wedge? What kind of uh, what kind of wedge did you get? I don't even know the brand. I ordered them off of Amazon. I, I got the ones that had really good reviews. I'm not a brand snob at all. Oh, but I'm not saying be, being a brand snob. There are snobs, or not snobs. There are, there are certain clubs in golf that you can get from a you know a good manufacturer and it's fine there are other things like wedges i think are if you like a Vokey, like hellas Vokey wedge is like known as one of the highest like it makes such a big difference because the way the spin that it puts on the ball is just oh man anyways i'm getting way off here I like i don't I'm, know what brand Yeah, I just read all the reviews, and there were several things that stood out. I liked the grip. I like that people described how cushiony the grips were. I figured out that I like. Oh, what? Yeah, and they they okay. Um. Yeah. Anyway, they work fine. great. We'll yeah, see. I'll matters, let you right? know how it turns that's out. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, but let's uh let's wrap this up. Where can people find Billy Sue? online like where do you exist what's where do you interact with people i am on facebook and instagram billy sue smith i think on instagram yeah billy sulu b-i-l-i-e-s-b-l-o-u i'm pretty active on linkedin and i write a lot on facebook i have lots of uh people on there that have grown up with me that i've met throughout the years i've you know over a thousand friends and i like to write short stories and people love them and i tell stories about my life and share things about the cat, of course, <laughs> and golf. So, yeah. yeah, I like interacting with people on Facebook. I, I, you know, I've recently started following you. I enjoy your post as well. I like people who put it out there on, you know, social media and let us see both the positive and the, you know, the ugly stuff. And yeah, that, those are my favorite kind of follows. I get so many messages from people when I share something. So many messages from people that will say. Hey, I didn't want to say this publicly, but and then they'll tell me something that they went through and you made me feel so much better about it. And that kind of keeps me sharing because I want more than anything for other people to feel comfortable sharing their stories as well. We need each other. We need to know that somebody's been through it before us, they're going through it with us. We need people. 
I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of the show is to, you know, help people feel more authentic and know that they're not on their own. You know, if you're in your worst spot where, you know, you are hiding everything, you can know that if nothing else, I've been there. And if, if the guest today hasn't been there, the next one will have been. You know, you're going to hear a story where somebody's been there and we all understand. Are you going to keep the podcast going in New England? New England? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this like this is going to be a very, very, very long time. That's, yeah. that so that's a pretty uh, bold move. But, yeah, that's a bold Figuratively move. and literally. <laughs> that is just packing your whole life up and shifting overseas. Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty much overseas. Yeah, it feels like it. But we're excited about the getting there part. Right now, we're just struggling with the like starting the where you know have to get our house listed. We have to figure out where exactly we're moving, and that's mm-hmm. it's a really hard whenever you can't just like drive around the corner and look at a house and see if it you know it's right. Like that part's not great. Where specifically are you going? That's a great question. Oh, you don't know even that yet. I I am like I moved me and my wife down here for my job that I was you know ten years at. Um, I'm letting her be the she gets to make the decision here. Like, if she wants me to, like, offer up a few places, I'll do that. But so far, she's just, she's kind of narrowed down and then kind of pulled back and narrowed down and pulled back. And we're just kind of waiting for that moment where it's, we had a big conversation the other day about her trying so hard to pick the perfect place mm-hmm. that it's stopping her from being able to pick anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, and it's free response. Yeah. So she, you know, that helped. And I feel like we're, we're close to picking that spot. Um, we're having a going away party on Sunday. Like we're doing early Friendsgiving, so we can see all of our friends and stuff again before we leave. And I would, I really wanted to be able to go into that saying, like, "Hey guys, this is where we're going." Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to, but I also, it's okay if we can't. You know, it's for us, and our friends will understand that. They'll be frustrated because they want to know where we're going, but they, they'll also understand that our decision. Yeah, I admire your bravery. Uh, we'll see how brave I am whenever we actually get on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be crying. Four kids, right? Yes. Four, oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. Four kids and That'll way too many. That'll be fun. That'll be fun in the car with them moving. Yeah. What a great adventure, though. That's exciting. Yes. Um, oh, I was going to ask one more question before we wrap up. You've kind of put a lot into defining yourself with sobriety. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like, what if I fail? Oh, my gosh. In fact... <laughs> I was, uh, when we were at the tattoo shop, it was myself, my two daughters, their dad, who was in town for the weekend, and my mom. And we were all there, and we're all having a great time, and we're joking with the owners of the tattoo shop. And I was going to put Roman numerals with my sobriety date after the word that I got tattooed on my collarbone. And someone, I don't remember, probably one of my smart aleck daughters said, what if you get the Roman numerals and then you decide to drink again? And honestly, I have thought about that, but at this point, I don't trust myself to drink again. Um, I don't think I'm someone who can just, I could, if you, I can for a while, I can just go and have two or three, but eventually I think it would lead to another night where I drink too much. And honestly, the idea of ever having a hangover or mentally spiraling, spiraling like that again, I just can't, I can't do it. So once I make a commitment, especially now, I'm pretty good about just sticking with it, just what I'm doing. I try to be flexible and open-minded, but I think not drinking alcohol is, no, I know not drinking alcohol is just a decision that I've made for myself for the rest of my life. And honestly, I have way more fun sober. Am I 
friends that drink have actually told me that because I still bar hop with them and I do all the things with them. We go to the lake. I do all the things I used to do drinking. I just drink water, which is very well hydrated. And they told me, you seem to have more fun sober than you did when you were drinking. So I can't think of a reason to ever drink. Can I, can I offer a reframe for not trusting yourself sure. to drink? Sure. What about you love yourself enough to decide not to? Not to, for sure. I've actually said that very I just never, ever loved myself in my life until now. And I really love and value myself. I'm impressed by myself. I know everything that I have to offer. And I want to keep this going. I don't want to do anything to mess with what I've built. So thank you for being such a great guest and being so vulnerable today and, you know, really sharing honestly. I think that it's so important. And I appreciate you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please leave a review. Um, it really helps me get heard by more listeners. And honestly, that's why I'm here. I want to get heard by people who I feel like can be helped by the authentic mission. Make sure you follow this podcast so you can get updates about new episodes and live streams. Share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it right now. Check out earlier episodes to support the future creation of great content. And don't forget to like at Authentic Identity Management on Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and or LinkedIn. You can also head over to the Authentic Bruce YouTube channel for podcast video and impactful clips for my conversations with these great guests. Finally, if you are struggling to show up as yourself in your content, your work, your family, or your life, I would love to help. Authentic Identity Management does authenticity and identity coaching to help you align your true self with the identity you share with the world. It's exhausting to live someone else's life. Live authentically and access the potential that belongs only to you. You can contact me on social or email bruce at authenticidentitymanagement.com and we can set up a free 30-minute consultation. That is it for today's episode. Thank you, Billy Sue Smith, again for being here. And to everyone out there, be yourself and love yourself. Bye.